Hello and welcome to episode 28 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of quick-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. On this week's show, Mason's talking about Uwe Rosenberg's latest Bonanza game, the two-player duel, while Mike takes on the latest addition to a very different board game family as he talks about Pandemic Rising Tide. I'm going to be setting sail to discuss Raiders of the North Sea, while Catherine travels to the stars to give us her review of Gaia Project. But first, here's Sarah, who's also exploring the further reaches of the universe, as she goes in-depth about tiny, epic galaxies. Scott Alm's Tiny Epic series, published by Gamelin Games, is designed to pack the experience of a big-box game into a small package. There are six games in the Tiny Epic series, though only five are out, Tiny Epic Zombies won't be available until later this year. For my money, 2015's Tiny Epic Galaxies is the most successful and the most fun. As you might guess from the name, Tiny Epic Galaxies has a space theme, specifically space colonization. Planets are represented by cards. Each planet has victory points and an ability printed on it. Players use wooden spaceship meeples to land on planets, either to collect resources and use its ability, or to colonize the planet, claiming its victory points plus sole use of the planet's ability in the future. In Tiny Epic Galaxies, what you spend most of your time doing is rolling dice. I'm a sucker for custom dice, and the ones in Tiny Epic Galaxies are among the best I've seen. They're beautifully produced, with icons that are easy to read and distinguish from each other. The dice allow you to take actions, move a ship, acquire resources, advance towards colonizing a planet, use the ability of a previously colonized planet, or upgrade your empire. Upgrading costs resources and gives you more dice, more ships, and most importantly, more victory points. Dice rolling always adds an element of luck to a game, but Tiny Epic Galaxies mitigates the luck factor in several ways. For one thing, after rolling the dice, you choose what order to activate them. This can make a huge difference in how a turn plays out. Also, you can re-roll some or all of the dice, once for free, and as many times as you want by spending the energy resource. And finally, you can spend two dice to change a third to whatever face you want. Wasting dice is costly in a game where every action counts, and I tend to use it only as a last resort. But if you really need that action, you can get it. My favorite part of Tiny Epic Galaxies, what I think changes it from a good game to a great one, is the follow mechanism. Every time you activate a die, every player can choose to follow you and take the same action by spending the culture resource. As an aside, there are two resources in Tiny Epic Galaxies. They're called Energy and Culture. I have no idea why, and it doesn't matter. It's a game about space. It has energy and culture. Just roll with it. Okay, back to following. Every player can choose to follow the active player and do their actions too by spending one point of culture for each follow. This means that there is essentially no downtime in Tiny Epic Galaxies. As long as you've got the culture points, even in a five-player game, you are never sitting there wondering if it would be rude to check your phone. Instead, you're constantly thinking about whether to follow the action that just came up, or wait and hope the next player rolls an action you need more. And you also need to think about following on your own turn. If you and another player are both trying to colonize the same planet, but she's ahead of you, using that action might allow her to follow you and grab the planet right out from under you. It's smarter to wait until she's out of culture, and then take the action you both need when she can't follow. Tiny Epic Galaxies is deliciously crunchy. The game is not long, generally under an hour, but there's so much to think about and so many decisions to sink your teeth into. Do you build up resources to make following and upgrading easier? Or do you focus on colonizing to get victory points, which after all, are how you win the game? 
Do you play defensively, trying to block other players? Or do you just go for what you need and hope to get there faster than the rest? By the end of the game, when pretty much everyone has all seven dice to work with, there are so many possibilities. At that point, the choices are usually about figuring out which path will get you that last couple of points that could mean the win. It feels like, how can I make the most of this, which I always find very satisfying. Not the painful, how can I mitigate this mess I'm in kind of decision. Now, this crunchiness can lead to information overload. There's a lot to process and keep track of, and this can be exacerbated by which planet cards happen to come out. But in general, I find Tiny Epic Galaxies gives me just enough to think about for a game of this length. Not too much. Another area where Tiny Epic Galaxies can be problematic is physical accessibility. The game's strength, packing a huge game into a small package, is also its weakness. The player mats are very small. You place several little wooden tokens on printed tracks on these mats to indicate resource levels and upgrade status. One careless reach across the table with a long sleeve, and you can end up scattering these tokens. Your resource status tends to change so often that remembering where you were on each track is difficult. Ask me how I know this. I wish the game had slightly thicker player mats with niches or stamped impressions to hold the tokens in place. But this is a much larger topic than I can do justice to in a five-minute review. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to read the excellent accessibility teardown of Tiny Epic Galaxies at meeplelikeus.co.uk. All that said, I highly recommend Tiny Epic Galaxies to anyone who wants a thinky, crunchy game that doesn't take three hours to play. At its length, it fills a real need in my collection. There's a whole lot going on in that little box. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not colonizing planets, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. I have been excited to play Gaia Project since I heard that Jens Drugemuller and Helga Ostertag were creating, quote, Terra Mystica in space, unquote. Terra has long been on my top 10 games. I've now played it in excess of 50 times. I was a bit trepidatious to begin playing Gaia Project, as I didn't know if it would hold up to the original. In this review, I have a difficult decision. To explain this crazy complex game to people who have never played Terra Mystica, or to talk about how this game compares to its predecessor. I'm inspired by the latter, so for those of you that have never played Terra Mystica, I will give a very brief synopsis of Gaia Project. Gaia Project is a 3x explore, expand, exploit space game, where your goal is to amass the greatest number of victory points. There are myriad ways to collect points during the game, and a few more at the end. In addition, you need to build an engine to upgrade your civilization so that it can more effectively exploit scoring opportunities. The game gives you brain burn on your brain burn, but each turn, you only take one small action, so the game moves pretty fast in spite of its thinky nature. Very few games give you such a feeling of accomplishment as to see your three federations stretching across the system at the end. The asymmetric player powers give each game a unique feel, lending to near-infinite replayability and requiring varied strategies for success. What worked in one game is unlikely to work in the next. After only seven plays, I can tell you that Gaia Project is, if anything, a better-built play experience, taking so many of the beloved Terra Mystica mechanisms and adding improvements into almost every facet of the game. The bones of this game are 100% Terra Mystica. Everything from how magic now power cycles, to the hexes with worlds on them waiting to be terraformed to your preferred terrain, to the upgrading of buildings to provide income, to the groups of different structures that you knit together into federations of colonies, to the 14 different alien races, formerly fantasy races, that you get to choose from to build your space empire, all are built from the DNA of the original game. One profound change is the addition of a tech track that replaces the cult tracks in the original Terra Mystica. The original cult tracks gave you magic pushes as a reward for climbing them, but always felt like a hollow path to victory. 
Look, I climbed this track higher than any of you. I get eight points. In Gaia Project, each track provides skill upgrades in each of six different areas of the game. Some provide immediate or round income, more stuff, while others upgrade what you can do. Want to terraform more cheaply? There's a track for that. Want to be able to reach more planets without spending precious QIC? There's also a track for that. Every player that gets their marker to the halfway point of each track will benefit with the three power push and endgame points for reaching those levels. You must have at least one free Federation token to flip to get to the top level of one of the six technology tracks, but the abilities available at these levels make that goal really compelling. In Gaia, the tiny purple power disks move from bowl to bowl, charging up until they're ready to be used, just like in Terra. But now there's a green bowl that they can hang out in, and many more ways for the power disks to be spent, tossed out of the game, and brought back into bowl one as well. This flexibility definitely adds to the brain burn. All those brilliant ways that Terra Mystica forced tough choices between resources now, points now, engine later, points later, are still there. Your faction still has asymmetric powers, and bonuses depending on what you choose to build and in what order. All of that lovely field of choices still exists. Upgrading your temples and sanctuaries in Terra Mystica provided favor tiles that would add cult track increases as well as income and scoring or other powerful abilities. These also exist in Gaia Project as tech tiles, which, depending on placement, are tied to different tech track each game and give one level up the associated track when you obtain them. In Gaia Project, the bonuses under research labs and academies, formerly temples and sanctuaries, provide a new resource called Knowledge. Nice thematic tie-in, which also helps you move up the tech tracks. Choosing which tech tracks to move up proves to be the most analysis paralysis aspect of Gaia Project for me, since the tracks provide amazing benefits that compound over the course of the game. Another change is the introduction of Gaia Formers, which allows you to change transdimensional planets on the world, those are the purple ones, to green Gaia planets. Gaia Formers add an entirely different focus, taking inaccessible parts of the board and creating a different path to terraforming it. This is tantalizing, but very challenging to do depending on your faction abilities and predilections. One common complaint with Terra is that it does not scale well for two. This has never bothered me as I considered it part of the game to cozy up or avoid the other player depending on the various faction abilities and preferred terrain of the two players. In Gaia, the two-player game uses only seven of the ten sector boards. Adjacency for the purposes of power shifting continues to be challenging to find in the two-player game, but scaling the map down was a solid choice and the build space still feels plenty fast. I will address what is sure to be an issue for many Euro gamers who love Terra Mystica. Recently, Marguerite Cottrell, aka MaggieBot on Twitter, created a hierarchy of Eurogamer needs with little wooden cubes, representing the pinnacle of Eurogame's spiritual attainment. While this won't be a deal-breaker for many of us, the use of plastic cubes and pieces in Gaia Project is a departure from the amazing wood bits of Terra Mystica. Some will prefer the use of plastic, finding it thematic. I would not be one of them. All in all, I am so pleased with this new iteration of Terra Mystica. It's like I have entered an alternate universe where one of my favorite games is just a bit different. Discovering Gaia Project is like rediscovering Terra Mystica and playing it for the first time all over again. Thanks for listening. If you want, you can find me at Cat Library BGG or Kybrarian on Twitter. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Bonanza The Duel. I'm going to proceed here as if no one listening has ever played Uwe Rosenberg's classic 1997 bean trading card game Bonanza. If you've tuned in for a compare and contrast between the two, just skip ahead because you're not going to get one. If you don't like Bonanza, you might still like The Duel, and vice versa. Bonanza The Duel is a little bit difficult to explain, so I do beg your patience on this one, though I assure you it's well worth it. So, Bonanza The Duel is a two-player card game about making and accepting offers and choosing to keep on building or cash out. 
your playing cards to one of three face-up fields in front of you in ascending value. You can place a 10 on top of an 8 or a 10, a 12 can go on top of a 10 or a 12, and so on. You can't go lower and you can't skip numbers. The more cards you play of the same value, the more coins they'll be worth later, but the higher number cards are worth fewer coins because there are far more of them. Bonanza the Duel is highly interactive. You must be paying constant attention to your opponent's fields because you each have three bonus cards in your hand. These bonus cards have patterns printed on them, and you can satisfy them at any time using either player's fields. Because you're making an offer of three face-up cards to your opponent every single turn, sometimes you might want to give them something you know they want if you'll benefit from it yourself by way of completing a bonus card. You always have to play the first card in your hand at the beginning of your turn, and you can never rearrange your cards. They stay in your hand in the order you drew them, so you'll often offer a card from your hand hoping to get rid of it before you have to rip up a field in order to play it. Even though the offer and counter-offer part of the duel is fairly rules-light, there's some serious strategy behind what you offer and what you accept. If you're the active player, and you flip over three cards that you really want, you might offer something out of your hand that you know your opponent wants, hoping they'll accept. If the three face-up cards are crap, you might offer one of them, plant the least bad one, and discard the third, because you can only discard one of the three each turn. You also might want to offer something you know they don't want, hoping to get a good counter-offer, letting you take all four cards. Only the last card offered by either player changes hands. Now, I realize that sounds a little complex, but it's really not once you've played a few rounds. All the emergence and much of the strategy is baked into the silent negotiation in Bonanza the Duel. I vastly prefer it to the open-ended negotiation of so many other training games. Only one card changes hands every round, so there are no sweeteners, no promises of future help, no offering to take a bunch of cards to help someone out. It's just, do you want this card? No. Do you want this card? Until someone finds it favorable. Now, there is a certain amount of rinse and repeat in the duel, and it's slightly longer than other small box card games. Experienced players will get through the deck in about 30 minutes, but your first game will probably be more like 45. Because you're constantly engaged at every decision point, there's zero downtime and it doesn't feel repetitive at all. In fact, the progress of Bonanza the Duel is more like waves. Crests and valleys as you build up, cash out, and start over, but all at your own pace within the flow of the game. So there are currently two available versions of the duel, the German Amigo version and the English Rio Grande Games version. I think you should buy the German version. It comes in a much smaller, higher quality box, and it's actually cheaper or the same price imported via Amazon. You'll have to wait a little longer for it to be shipped from Germany, but I think it's well worth it. If you're one of our UK listeners, the German version is much cheaper than the US version. There are English rules available on Amigo's website, and the game is language independent anyway. Regardless of which version of you buy, the art is not to my liking. Some of that is just personal taste. I don't care for any of the art in any version of Bonanza, and... Duel is weirdly relationship-themed and very pointedly heteronormative for some reason. Each card depicts a bean couple, and many of the bean ladies are some sort of cartoonish wife trope, while the bean gentlemen appear to be classically comically henpecked. None of this is surprising, as there's a lot of problematic art in the Bonanza Extended Universe. For more on some straight-up racist bean art, check out Ruth's review of Werfel Bonanza back in episode 5. Someone out there, cough cough, Beth Sobel, cough cough, should whip up a reskin of Bonanza Duel because it would make the game even better. But all that aside, the Duel is one of my favorite new two-player games, and I can't get enough of it. The app is also excellent, and I highly recommend it for tablets. It's put out by Digidice, the same company who brought us the Patchwork app and several other very good Uwe Rosenberg digitizations. I didn't enjoy playing it on my phone as much, since the visual space is a little small, but it's still perfectly usable and a great value. So, who should buy Bonanza the Duel? People who love two-player games people who love pattern building and climbing games, people who love economic push-your-luck games, and people who love medium-weight weeknight games you can carry around in a coat pocket. I give Bonanza the Duel 8 out of 8 stink beans harvested for maximum bean coinage. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. 
a soft spot for historical games, so I've been really digging these new Pandemic editions, if you couldn't tell from my review of Pandemic Iberia back in episode 25. A game I still consider to be in my top 5. But there's a new contender on the block, Pandemic Rising Tide. This time Matt Leacock has teamed up with Jerome Dumen of Dutch publisher Splatter to put us in Industrial Age Netherlands as we struggle to keep the old infrastructure of dikes and pumps going while building new modern hydraulic structures to hold back the sea and keep the lands from flooding. I started drooling as soon as I heard the premise. Pandemic Rising Tide is the most non-pandemic board game version of Pandemic that I've played so far, and I really like what they did here. They've kept the core for Pandemic. You're still playing different roles, some of which, like the director, translate pretty closely to their base Pandemic counterparts, some of which are much different. Most are super useful. The carpenter and hydraulic engineer seem the most useful to me. Others, like the sanitation engineer, not so much. I really like and appreciate that four of the seven roles are women, though any racial, physical ability, and more body type diversity would have been appreciated. Yeah, yeah, try out the old tired misses the point historical argument now. It's a game, and I'd like to see more diversity in my game. Thank you very much. It's a good start, but you can do better, Z-Man. So in Rising Tide, you're concerned about regions, not specific cities. Each region is protected from water by dikes at the start of the game, and while some start initially with some water in them, most are dry. That is, until you perform the region degradations. This is like drawing from the infection deck in regular Pandemic. As you draw dike failure cards, you must remove a dike from that region. If that region no longer has any dikes, then you place a water cube in that region. Then the water flows. Any region with an open gap next to a region with more than one cube receives as many cubes as the first region minus one. This includes any gaps along the coast next to the sea. So if the sea or a region are at level 3, then the adjacent region will get 2 cubes, and subsequently any regions next to that region with no dike along the border would get 1 cube. It's like having to worry about an outbreak every turn. Especially once the sea reaches level 4, a missing coastal dike can use up a lot of water cubes. One dike failure card in the wrong place can undo a lot. Oh, and did I mention that each region has 2 cards in the dike failure draw pile? So my personal experience is that each game some regions are going to really get hammered. You just have to figure out which ones and really concentrate on keeping them shored up with dikes. I should also note that there are more storm cards in Rising Tide than in regular Pandemic, so catastrophic failures will occur more frequently than epidemics, making your task very difficult. So that's what you're up against. What help do you receive? Well, there are the typical event cards, and unlike other versions of Pandemic, I've yet to hit one that I thought wasn't very helpful pretty much at the time that I drew it. You can also build ports that are similar to research stations in that they are helpful for travel. Any player on their turn may move back to any port with just one action. Ports are very powerful for movement. You can also build pumping stations, which of course everyone just calls windmills because why wouldn't you call them windmills? Before you draw your player cards, you may pump away one water cube for any region that is reachable by each pump. Reachable means that there are no dikes or high ground blocking the path to that water. As removing a water cube usually takes one action on your turn, getting pumps out is super helpful. As you also have two cards for each region in the player deck, spending a card to build a pump or a port has never felt particularly painful to me. The final thing in our favor is that as you build each of the four hydraulic structures, they each give you a one-time bonus that can be vitally helpful. Knowing that someone is about to build a structure can allow you to ignore a region for a moment, or really help plug some gaps right before the sea is about to move to four cubes, or help in other ways. The game ends when all your objectives are completed, or you lose because you can no longer draw two player cards or run out of water cubes. My losses have all been the water cube type. 
If you find the game too easy or too difficult, you can adjust the difficulty with the number of events cards or storm cards, you can adjust the starting level to C marker, or you can use the variable objective cards. These 12 cards give you goals that replace the standard 4 hydraulic structure goals. Of course, those 4 are in this deck as well, so you may still have to build some, or you may even want to build some that aren't your goal to get the one-time bonus. But other objectives have you removing all the dikes along the sea and fighting to restore them and keep the area water-free, or creating population cubes in an area and keeping them safe, or creating a certain number of ports or pumps in certain regions. I've played with variable objectives twice and have failed horribly both times, but I really like the variety that they add and I'm looking forward to trying them again. As a parting topic, I would like to discuss the art in Pandemic Rising Tide. There has rightfully been a lot of praise heaped on the art in Pandemic Iberia, with its bright colors and patterns reminiscent of Spanish tilework. To that end, I've seen many comments about how disappointed people are in the art in Rising Tide, and I personally could not disagree more. The dark but very detailed style is very reminiscent of Vermeer, Potter, and Van Roostel, and other Dutch Golden Age artists. I'm personally a big fan of the art and think it fits perfectly. Anyway, so that's Pandemic Rising Tide, a very worthy addition to the Pandemic Pantheon. And if you like the concept of Pandemic want to try something that plays just a little differently, please give it a try. I don't think you'll regret it. Until next time, if you wish to discuss Rising Tide further, or have any thoughts on why so many games with windmills are in my top 10 games, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at MikeRizzly. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I'm talking about a game I missed during an initial crowdfunding campaign, but was very happy to see become available in regular retail. Raiders of the North Sea was originally published in 2015 by Garfell Games, and was then brought to the US in 2017 by Renegade Game Studios. Designed by Shem Phillips and illustrated by Mihailo Dmitrievsky, this worker placement game is actually one part of a trilogy of games that can be combined sequentially with the aid of an expansion. While I haven't played its companion games, Raiders was one of my favorite games learned in 2017, and it's one I think I'll be keeping around for a while. This is a Viking-themed worker placement game in which players build up a crew and supplies in order to be successful when they sail out to attack various harbors, monasteries, and so on, bringing back plunder and earning victory points. Victory points can also be earned from making offerings to the chieftain back in the home village, but since most of what he wants comes from plunder, raiding is going to be required, somewhat appropriate given the name of the game. The most interesting thing that Raiders does is play with the typical worker placement style of place a worker and do the action. The game modifies this turn structure to be place a worker in a spot and do the thing, but then remove a different worker from another space and perform its action as well. When a player raids, they will place the meeple they have on the area they're raiding, and then remove a worker from that area when taking their rewards. This means players get two actions per turn when performing village actions, but they have to be some combination of a free space and an occupied space, which causes the combinations to shift and change depending on your opponent's plays. Later in the game, as different types of workers become available, decisions also start to be influenced by the color of worker that would be gained. You see, there are three different worker types in the game, and some spaces can only be used by certain types or provide different resources depending on the worker activating them. Players all start with black workers, and the village is seeded with some of these also, but gray and white workers are placed on the raiding targets. They only start to enter the game's economy once people start sailing out in search of plunder. It's a quick-moving game, and while one of three things can trigger the end, those triggers are easily spotted as they approach, and so I don't find it's a game that suddenly ends on me. It might end faster than I had thought, 
but I usually have enough time to switch to earning more immediate points rather than trying to go for a bigger, more distant payoff. Once players grasp that they always start and end their turn with a single meeple in hand, it's easy to spot if someone's forgotten their second action, which keeps the game moving. There's actually very little downtime overall, since a player's choice of action has such a large effect on everyone else's decisions. In addition, there's a bit of take that in some of the card play and crew abilities, which again forces players to stay attentive. And while there is this potential for people to screw with each other, I don't find it to be too much or too mean, and it is thematically appropriate. Now, some later raid actions are going to involve die rolls. However, a raid will always be successful provided a player has the correct resources to take the action, and a player always gets the plunder. The die roll is simply added to a player's strength and armor to determine the number of victory points, if any, they'll receive, depending on thresholds printed on the space. Players can simply push their strength and armor higher if they dislike the uncertainty, but be aware the dice are also heavily weighted towards average values as opposed to being standard d6s, and it's really not a huge problem even for those who complain about luck. Raiders is a beautiful game. It has a very different style of art than that typically seen in historically themed board games, being as it is full of vibrant color and exaggerated stylized character design. There's a variety of female Vikings represented also, which I absolutely appreciate, especially since there also is a little bit of variety in body types, though there could definitely be more women and more body shapes overall. In addition, the layout and graphic design all works very well, and the clear and consistent iconography makes the game very easy to teach. The game also comes with great components, metal, coins, and wooden bits clearly distinguished by shape and color. Although to that last point, I will say that at a recent gaming event I had trouble telling the black and grey meeples apart, so lighting can still be an issue. Overall, Raiders of the North Sea is a super solid, stunningly beautiful worker placement game that works well, say, after dinner or in a more relaxed game setting. I'm looking forward to trying out the two expansions available for the game at some point, both of which can add a fifth player to the experience, and I do eventually want to try the other games in the North Sea saga. Explorers of the North Sea and Shipwrights of the North Sea. I don't know that I'll be trying the full Rune Saga experience of playing all three together in sequence anytime soon, but it is an interesting concept to have decisions in one game affect a different game played afterwards. If you like worker placement games and are interested in a game that twists the concept just enough to be interesting while remaining comfortable and familiar, then I really highly recommend checking out Raiders. Plus, with clear, well-written roles and simple but satisfying gameplay, it's also a game that I can recommend to any less experienced gamers who are looking for something new to try. So until next time, I'll be off in search of more plunder, but you can always find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to The Five by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your 5-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at 5 bygamescom the Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.